This is Our Lives in Politics on the America Out Loud Network with your host Booker Scott and Lou Basada. I've had an uneasy feeling about what's happening in the world for years. And if you can hear my voice right now, I know you've probably felt the same way for a while. At first, I thought it was a liberal conservative thing, a Democrat-Republican difference. But as events have happened around the world the last few years, the picture has become clearer for me and probably for you. There's a battle. It's a battle of good and evil. It's a battle of elite globalists against people around the world that want sovereignty, freedom, and liberty. It's a battle between the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, a New World Order, and those of us that just want it to stop. I want to quickly get to our guest on the program. He's been involved with domestic and international politics for over 35 years. He was a speechwriter for George H.W. Bush, part of the Heritage Foundation for five years, and was one of the 12 people that created the original National Tea Party that overwhelmed the election in 2010 to take back the House of Representatives in the biggest landslide win ever. I'm talking about Michael Johns, and he's going to join us in just a minute. This hour is brought to you by 4Patriots.com. That's the number 4Patriots.com. Use the promo code OUTLOUD. That's one word. That's OUTLOUD at 4Patriots.com. I'm Booker Scott, the host of Our Lives in Politics. Alongside me is co-host and producer Lou Pizzotta. Lou, we only have an hour here, and Michael has a ton of information to share with us and hopefully some plans for the future. But before we get to Michael, Lou, let me ask you, does your world feel like it's been flipped upside down for the last few years? Without a doubt, Booker. Ever since COVID uh, began, it's nothing's been the same. I haven't seen any good come from any of it uh, in the last couple of years. But that's my opinion. Yeah, it's been it's been a crazy few years, and uh, with that, let's bring in Michael Johns. Michael Johns, welcome to our lives and hey, politics. Pleasure to be back with you, Booker. Um, and uh, thanks for all you're doing. Yes, sir. And and we are so glad to have you on this program because we feel like there's a there's a portion of this that needs to be some education, but yet so many people listening right now, so many people in our audience, they already have an understanding really of what the World Economic Forum is. And it went from what people called a conspiracy theory to we look at last week where every elite globalist in the country and politicians from all over the world met in Davos. And people should know that uh, the World Economic Forum is 50 years old. Right. It's not new. So uh, just real quick, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I mean if you start, you start with Lou's assessment, which I think is a broadly held sentiment, you know, that among Americans, maybe not engaged every day professionally in public policy or politics, there's a general sense of unease about the direction of things. And that's for good reason. And that is that not only is nothing really moving in the positive direction, but a lot of the underlying foundations that we've come to rely on, those institutions and and historically in the United States, leaders that we've been able to call upon in moments of crisis and uncertainty are really shrinking from responsibility. 
And, you know, so if you sort of said, well, all of these negative developments that are occurring in the United States, um, some of which are, you know, global in nature or domestic in nature, who is ultimately pulling the strings? Who's ultimately behind all this? I think the answer, in fairness, is probably no singular entity or force. But I would I would say that China's Communist Party, uh, important to remember that it's a, a very elite number, ultimately a dictatorship, been in power since 1949, has gained an extraordinary amount of leverage in the United States. And by that, I mean economic leverage and uh, geopolitical leverage and, um, you know, some believe, uh, uh, you know, infiltration into these major institutions. Well, I shouldn't say some believe, that's a fact. Uh, the magnitude of that hopefully will be unearthed in some of the forthcoming congressional hearings. Right after that, though, I would put, as you correctly said, the World Economic Forum, an, an organization that I would guarantee a very small percentage of Americans have ever even heard about, much less um, you know, looked at in great detail, and for good reason. It's not an entity that is elected. It's not really directly accountable for anyone. And like you said, it's uh, you know founded in 1971. That's 52 years ago. Um, it's based in Europe. It has a kind of Eurocentric outlook on the world, and its predominant membership are are are, are corporations which you would think that the the global left that we kind of associate with having momentum right now politically would have a real problem with this, but they've just gravitated to this. And it's not just any companies, it's important to point out. These are the largest companies in the world, over $5 billion, uh, in revenue, and you could typically – categorized as large capitalization companies. I mean, they're publicly traded on, on major stock exchanges, almost certainly on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ in the United States. Uh, they're, they're well capitalized. They have the luxury um, to do strategic, well-financed initiatives. And one of the great losses, I believe, really, over the last decade has been the fact that while Clearly, education, media, uh, the bureaucracy, uh, high culture, low culture, all these entities that are so influential have been taken over by the left sports, even to some extent. We always said, well, the private sector will hold that at bay. They have not hold it at bay, held it at bay. These companies have jumped right in to this agenda. And the agenda itself is enormously troubling, and it's filled frankly, intellectually, which I think is the opportunity we have on a bunch of fallacies, um, some of which are environmental hysteria. This is very much at the centerpiece of it. They more or less want to get rid of carbon-based emissions in the world. Of course, we never point this out, but I think it's part of our deficiency in explaining all this. The correlation between CO2 emissions and environmental health is very much ongoing um, debate and, and a lot of scrutiny associated with it. Um, there's often represented there's scientific consensus on this, but those scientists are not climate scientists. They're mm -hmm. often people that have no real deep understanding of it. And what they would do with this agenda is really grind Western and Western alone in uh, industry because it's not as much as it's a global organization. They're not forcing China 
um, or uh, India. Prominent, let's just focus on that. Yeah. India to um, uh, play by these rules. They're setting different standards that would essentially, in my view, lay the groundwork for us to be surpassed and maybe surpassed fairly quickly as the world's really the largest economy, the, the, the most vibrant economy in the history of the world. Uh, so there's the environmental component, other components about how they're trying to reshape corporate entities, um, Again, on 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 really questionable uh, underlying statistical or factual assessments, and one of those is you know the ESG program, which some may have heard about, which would essentially restructure the purpose of a company. You know, so what is the purpose of a company historically? Well, we've always been told, especially a publicly traded company, is to maximize return for shareholders. And in so doing, that not alone that shareholders would be a beneficiary of that, but as they seek to do that, you know, they would be serving customers in 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 a constructive and positive way and obviously providing products and services and hopefully in an innovative ongoing uh, in going ongoing innovative way that um, serve real legitimate customer needs. Not in the World Economic Forum that they will uh, rest- restructure the purpose of a company. They've got a lot of company, many companies, an extraordinary amount of companies and, and large ones, especially on board with redefining this as supporting what they call stakeholder capitalism, which is not capitalism because ultimately it's um and they're very good at the phraseology on all this, but stakeholder capitalism would arbitrarily sort of select who the beneficiaries and the focus of the company should be on. Uh, so they talk about unions, they talk about the community, they talk about um, you know other you know stakeholders that interact with companies, and none of this is really ever really defined with any precision because in the precision lies all the controversy and the detail is that you know if you don't like the fact that the market drives these economies that we reward you know executives for instance for performance we we punish them and and punitively for uh, you know for a uh, lack of performance in the absence of that sort of structure where it's a performance driven economy, who would actually make these decisions? You know, who would sit behind the room, you know, behind the closed doors and say, these are going to be the beneficiaries of our corporate focus. This is the new, um, the entities. That's never really particularly well answered, but let me just say that you can safely assume the worst that these guys have been fully captured entity of, globalist far left thinking and um that would mean that the beneficiaries are entities that are very much aligned and a part of this agenda and i think you you mentioned the conspiracy thinking um i'll just say two things about that number one that's never helpful to us when we seek to bring scrutiny to any issue and that is to speculate or to, to have conjecture that's not founded in fact about what's going on so it's kind of set us back a little bit but in i guess in a little bit of fairness i think where do these where does that sort of thinking ever emerge it always emerges when you've got some degree of powerful forces in the world usually involving governments and governments are clearly involved uh with world economic forum and and large companies 
to which people feel disengaged operating in a closed fashion and not being fully transparent or accountable. That's where people start to say, well, what are you, what are you actually hiding? The answer here is probably a whole lot more than we even realize about what they're hiding. And I think that they've been the final point here emboldened by the fact that they have made incredible progress with some really ultimately very unappealing ideas across some of the most influential sectors in the world. And, you know, I'll just give you one glaring example is, you know, I have a formal education in economics. Um, I was talking to a few colleagues, they're like, you call yourself an economist, it's a function, not anything more. (laughs) I'm like, okay. But I mean, that is kind of like the foundation. And, you know, so I've spent a lot of time reading business media. If you read business media like 20 years ago, and I'm talking about Forbes, Fortune, Business Week, or the more academic, like the MIT Management Journal or Harvard Business Review, and you pick those up like over the last few years, or if you looked at them today, which maybe you haven't, you wouldn't recognize these. I mean, I mean, Forbes used to be Steve Forbes, you know, kind of out front. Yeah. That magazine was sold and it's it full, it's filled with all of this WEF. I want to say it's like repetitious propaganda, frankly. It just doesn't ever seem to uh, stop. And and it never it's never particularly innovative or appealing writing either. It's just enormously repetitious. But it's drilling home in an effective way that the the broad point that Lou mentioned, which it, is the recipe and the culture under which really bad things tend to happen, is that things are different now. All of a sudden, because of COVID especially, we can't go back to normal. Well, why can't we go back mm-hmm. to normal? That's never really fully explained. But everything is prefaced in light of the pandemic. Yeah, Therefore, we need to do all these things that we would never sensibly or thoughtfully do on our own initiative in any other set of circumstances. We need to push back on that. Um, obviously, this has been enormously disruptive, costly on human terms, costly in economic terms, um, probably costly in, in, in very emotional ways. It's no doubt about that. That's why we need to hold China accountable for their role in it. But I, but it doesn't change the underlying fundamentals about what does and does not work, uh, both in a market economy and in a free society. It doesn't give government the the, the green light to begin censoring uh, people or or taking controls that they haven't historically uh, had or that they're not constitutionally afforded. Hey, Michael, let me let me ask you: Do you feel like you've been able to put your finger? on what the motivation is for the World Economic Forum. Is there a singular motivation for these people and the Great Reset? Well, yeah, very, very, I've spent a, a considerable amount of time trying to like dive into the motivations because those are, it, within the motivations, you can really understand a lot more about what the real agenda is. And I would say in this case, you know, you have this, I think, 83-year-old, German management professor, Klaus Schwab, very unappealing guy, nothing genius about him um, on the surface, who was originally attracted to some of the deficiencies that he saw in capitalism. You know, is, is he a Marxist? 
I don't think I would define it in those terms in traditional, which, and of course, Marxism has a really deep and rich history in German uh, academia. Mm-hmm. But he clearly, for decades since this 1971 founding, has been hitting home the stakeholder agenda, which I think is his way of upending the system. And, and it gained no traction, it gained no traction, but it's like many things in politics you are put, or in public policy, or in the, the broader influence debate over these issues. You push, you push, you push, you're not making a headway, you're not making a headway, and then finally he's had this breakthrough. And um, the breakthrough, I think, is designed essentially to upend the West as we know it, um, there's a certain degree of almost anti-Americanism within it in the sense that um, we're continuing, continually on the receiving end of all of these edicts that this unelected entity and unelected leader have. Um, they're not telling our primary foes in the world what to do. They wouldn't dare. And um, we're depicted in ways that are, I think, uh, wholly unfair to the magnitude of promise and accomplishment that is associated with the United States of America, the greatest country in the history of the world. And um, that's dangerous because one of the things we're going through right now, as you obviously noted, it's been at least a decade or longer of really both subtle and then bold levels of attacks on our founding principles, on our founding fathers, on our history, all designed to get, I think, Americans, especially younger and perhaps less educated Americans, failing to understand the great country that they've had the good Mm -hmm. fortune of being born into. So they've been very much at that, particularly as it relates to, I think, an effort to take over essentially private sector. And, And by the way, this would also crush, in my view, smaller businesses, which is always... I guess, to some extent, uh, been a big business ob- ob- agenda. That's why we have, um, you know, a, a very strong antitrust and other regulations on the books that prevent companies from getting too big. But this would further empower uh, big business. It would wed the power of big business to other influential entities and create the sort of climate in which the individual and smaller community-based family-owned small businesses, which historically have been the greatest job creators in the country, would uh, become less and less influential and may ultimately even go away. Let's let's back up a couple of minutes ago to when you were mentioning ESG and a stakeholder, because both of those are terms that we hear a lot when we're talking about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. ESG is uh, environmental social governance. And just to really make it simple for people, when you look at social, you're talking about the wokeism and the wokeness of our society today. And when you look at social, you're talking about the Green New Deal and let's do windmills, let's get rid of our oil and gas. And so all those things that we have seen that Biden has done since he's been here, as a president, he is uh, kind of leading the charge on that ESG as far as uh, politically in this country. Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, um, not that I, and which is intriguing because, like most of the really destructive things he's doing, while I've never been a, a fan of of him, uh, and uh, and he has made errors of judgment 
they've never been, you've never would have historically looked at him as mm-hmm. this sort of ideologue. No. Um, but uh, he is, as many people are, seeing either seeing the political and other opportunities associated with aligning with this, or maybe just doesn't, in, which I think is also true broadly in 2023, doesn't have the spine, the backbone to stand up and say, no, this is not the direction we're, we're going. Yeah. Um, and, and we're, by the way, so we're talking about a really extensive number of companies. I mean, you can go on the NASDAQ website. For instance, I ran, um, I was on the executive management team of a NASDAQ traded Fortune 1000 company. I ran investor relations. So, you know, in, in, um, uh, was very familiar with, with the NASDAQ. None of this existed when I was there. You now have whole sections there, not only where they're introducing and, um, creating, you know, a, a plan for NASDAQ traded companies to adopt these these policies, but they are they actually have an ent- entities within NASDAQ that work with companies, both to tell you know to tell their story, their ESG story about the things they're doing. Again, it's it's very sophisticated politically to build momentum uh, behind the effort and maybe to guilt those who aren't as far along with it, and then to adopt it. and And then how do you measure? Look, how do you measure the results on this? We all know how to measure results historically in a company and not just financial ones. You can measure customer service satisfaction. You can me- measure product and service satisfaction. And ultimately, obviously you're going to measure, you know, shareholder return and um, revenue growth, profitability. This is a whole very subjective set of metrics. And it's frankly not what a company is designed to do. There's a lot of role for, activity in these sectors. No one's saying that they're not potentially advantageous initiatives, but they're not the role of companies. And and if they become the role of companies, what doesn't become the role of companies? Well, it's going to be innovation, growth. All of a sudden growth is not that matter. So if you, and you can see, and this is the way I look at it. Like I, tr- I try to think, how does that first presentation go? when you were um, going in with these ESG standards and you're either meeting with a, you know, an executive management team or maybe a board of directors or, or say it's just a CEO and uh, alone. And you say, you know, all these historical metrics of shareholder return and, and growth and profitability that have, that have been under which you've been measured and which companies have been measured. Yeah. Just suspend all that. We're not going to do that any longer. We have a whole other different set of um objectives that's a almost a revolutionary message and how it gained foothold even in one case to me is astonishing much less the way it has just been a tidal wave through big business i'm not aware i guess i I think there might be some energy companies um, that are pushing back a little bit probably because they have equal concern about the associated green energy which is you know, entirely flawed initiative to its core. And, and Michael, uh, we also have component. the, we also have the digital currency that's a part of this. And we have yeah, 12, but, 12. Yeah, there's a, there's, this yeah. is an entire overhaul. Like, okay. So 2020, um, you know, is when they really un, unveiled what was called the global reset. And that's intriguing time because they, you know, they kind of waited and this is, historically been true with Marxists and it's been true with most totalitarian 
political movements that they see in chaos or disruption the uh, the opportunity to advance ideas that we would never go for. You know, there's a saying Mao had. He says, you know, everything under the sun is I don't know, discombobulated or in chaos. The situation is perfect, right? Not, gee, this is horrible. So chaos is an ally of totalitarian political movements. Stability and happiness and satisfaction, conversely, um, which I would say largely or historically been associated with American generations uh, are, are, are reinforcing that we're doing the right things. And that's the danger of the moment right now. Is just, so we have Americans who I think very subjectively understand that the country is moving in very dangerous directions. And now it's not just that they're observing it, but they're feeling it with inflationary pressures, with access to credit, with uncertainties about uh, how to pay for homes or um, education and in the corruption of core institutions that they've come to rely on, like primary education and what's happening to their kids in schools that they're apparently not you know, even informed about, uh, dramatic things. These are terrifying things, but they're terrifying especially, which I think is my main point right now, if you're facing them alone. Right. If you're not it, it, the good news, which is what we have to fall back on, is we have a country. And I think this is true in the West, largely generally, that doesn't buy into this agenda. And we have so we have the people with us and we have the better ideas. I mean, we're not trying to force some secret agenda um, on anyone. We don't have alternative motives. We want the best for the country. But, but if we don't have the operational side of things down. I mean, we don't know how to get things done. Um, we don't know how to advance policies. We don't know how to work collaboratively and in a unified way. Or we're distracted, which I think we often are, with sort of the shiny object of the moment. Or we don't take this seriously. It's all a big meme to us and a joke. Mm -hmm. This is no joke. No. This is one of the most serious moments, certainly since the Civil War. I mean, let's just say this is that, that really since the Civil War, the future of our country has never been more uncertain in my view. But it's not too late if we can adopt and adapt in, in an operational way to ensure that bad ideas are held at bay and good ones are uplifted and ultimately uh, prevail. And you know what? We'll never get that done if we're not working together. We'll never get that done together. We'll never get that done if we're not um, strategic in the way we approach it. And that means, obviously, really, there's nothing more seriously that, that we could be engaged in. And I don't know why that should be surprising to anyone, because every, I think everyone on, on our side who does sort of kind of what I do in the way of making these arguments intellectually and, and in a policy and political way, always prefaces it by saying, you know, the future of the world, the future of the United States is on the line. Well, if that's true, why are our operational tactics not rise to that level? Because they don't. Well, let's talk about and, that in just a couple of minutes. We, we're going to take a break here, Michael, but let's start talking about on the other side of this, how we can formulate a plan how we can unify, how we can come together. And we also, I think we should probably take a look at 
who's responsible for where we find ourselves right now. And we'll get into all that in a few minutes. Uh, hey, Lou, I, I understand you got some snow over there this week. Is that right? That is true. And it's melting. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, good. But do you, you remember the big snow and uh, ice storm that Texas had last year? The, the grid went down completely. Do you remember that? Oh, it was devastating for them. Very yeah, much. Well, the national security experts are warning and um, letting us know that our power grid is vulnerable, very vulnerable. January marked the third time a power station in North Carolina was damaged by gunfire. Authorities are saying the attack, quote, raises a new level of threat, unquote. Authorities are now checking our own grid to see the vulnerabilities that are there. They've identified nine key substations. Now, if these substations are attacked, power could be knocked out from coast to coast for up to 18 months. Think about that. A blackout lasting not days, but weeks or months. Your life would be frozen in time at that very moment. Lights all over the country would go out, throwing people into total darkness. And that's why having your own portable solar power right now is more important than ever. With the Patriot Power Sidekick from 4Patriots, you get a solar generator that doesn't install in your house. It's quick, easy, portable, on the go, or you can even put it inside. It's small, about the size of a lunchbox, about 8 pounds, but it's powerful. Powerful enough for your phones, medical devices, or even a mini fridge. It comes with a free solar panel and free shipping. And practically unheard of, a 365-day satisfaction guarantee. Not only that, you can get 10% off right now on your first purchase by typing the code out loud at checkout. Just go to 4patriots.com. Use the code out loud to get your 10% off the first purchase of a Patriot Power Sidekick or, for that matter, anything in the store. That's 4patriots.com. Use the code, one word, out loud. More with Michael Johns is coming up, and hopefully he'll be able to give us some direction and guidance on how to stop the Great Reset in a moment. Stay with us for more of Our Lives and Politics. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulvidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20%. By using promo code OUTLOUD. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. 
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com. Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums, that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com Welcome back to Our Lives in Politics on the America Out Loud radio network. I'm Booker Scott, along with Lou Pazada, our special guest, 
is Michael Johns, and we're talking about the World Economic Forum. And Michael, as we look now at where this world is, and we've talked about it here in the first half of this hour, who do we blame? Who, who takes responsibility for allowing this to happen to our country and the western part of Europe? Well, it's my view and big part of my message the last few years that I think we it's too easy for us to look at the uh, malicious, malevolent forces of the world that seek to undermine the, the values and, um, and our country uh, and just simply blame them. That's easy. But there's nothing new there, really. I mean, since, you know, really the first shot at Concord, we have faced major opposition around the world and in our own country that we've been able to beat back by presenting better ideas <clears throat> and by succeeding. Uh, and working together toward that. What's different now and why, why I believe we're vulnerable and why really fairly alien agendas like this have made, you know, in a, in a, like I said, in an, in an organization that has no accountability, well, no one elected them, no one really asked for their opinion, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, such, you know, progress is the disorganization the <clears throat> lack of collaborative, uh, unified approach to the what I would describe as the conservative or patriot movement in the country, which comp- comprises the vast, vast majority of the American people. I mean, they might not be involved, but they're aligned with us. And those people over the last few decades have largely, you know, if they have, haven't been engaged in this, have often turned and supported financially and in other ways, organizations to fight those battles for them. So when we had, as we did in 2020, questions about the election integrity and even the legitimacy of the president, when we had, you know, the outrageous departure in Afghanistan, leaving $85 billion in military equipment behind, Mm -hmm. when we had this border crisis, which is not just a ongoing national security and economic threat, but one that will continue to be with us for a, for a long time, which is transforming the country. They anticipated that this movement would arise to do what they were not positioned to do, and that is to fight it back, not just to write about it, not to make fun of it, not to joke about it, but to actually engage in this battle and win. So in many ways, if you want to take anything constructive away from the World Economic Forum, which isn't a forum at all because they, there's no no they're not really deliberating on these ideas. They know exactly what they want to do. Right, right. No, there would be no. And while Trump had a chance to speak there, and um, I think twenty Bolsonaro, who's a you know a, I think largely looks at the world the way we do in Brazil, spoke there, and Modi, who I think is a good um, uh, leader in India and has the right instincts, usually is spoken there. You, it's it's otherwise just been completely run on a top-down basis by this left-of-center operatives who understand what I'm saying, which is that you need cross-functional collaboration. And by that, I mean, you know, it's not even just politics or public policy. In this case, it's included big business. It's included nonprofit organizations. They got the UN. They have the World Bank. Almost every multinational institution is at a presence or involvement. They, uh, they have the media. Those things don't just happen. You yeah. have to go out and make them happen. 
Right. And they have the media. And we need to do that. Yeah. We need to do that. We need to we need to determine are the institutions that we're relying upon even sufficient for us to be able to prevail in in this debate and battle. Uh, do we need new ones? Do some of them do we need to vet them more carefully? They clearly have not uh, taken these issues on. And I'm going to tell you, it's it takes a lot in the way of human character and demeanor to do so. You can't just sort of assume that people are going to gravitate and and walk toward the fire. Uh, they'll walk away from the fire usually. But the point is they're being paid to walk to the fire. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that they're not afraid by the of the fire. And sadly, I think we've attracted a lot of people into this domain and leadership capacities in Congress, in think tanks, in D.C.-based organizations who are not um, made for this moment in this battle um, and have predictably, I don't even want to say failed, but not even engaged in this in any in any serious way. And if you're not if we're not serious, we're not unified, we're not collaborative, then the, the most horrible ideas will advance. And I think, frankly, on the other side. I think this is true with China's Communist Party. I think it's true with the World Economic Forum. They think the conservative movement, the patriot movement in the United States and the West generally is kind of a paper tiger, you know, that it will make some noise, it'll complain, but ultimately when the rubber hits the road, that it doesn't have the ability to be formidable and, and actually stop the advance of this agenda, which let's be honest, the people don't people don't support. No one would support these ideas if they were put up for a referendum, which is why they don't want them in a referendum, why they're working behind the scenes to force them on institutions. So they just become de facto realities. Mm -hmm. They they take it to the universities, they take it to the big corporations and it becomes a right. part of the fabric of, and we, of the but, nation. But the point is we the point that I'm making, which I don't think many on our side have either made or I don't know if it's even realized it or if they're reluctant to make it is that it's not like we didn't have well-financed organizations that were ostensibly involved with making sure that all these vital institutions like academia, like primary education, like media. I mean, we still have organizations out there that do nothing but point out media bias. Didn't we establish that fact 20 years ago? That the media was biased. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're now, and it, we're, we're, our focus now has to be on either creating the institutions or in motivating and directing those that exist for the magnitude of this battle that's at hand, because this is something that is, in my involvement, uh, unprecedented in the, in the means that, that you just see the magnitude of resources and passion, energy, and commitment that exists on the other side. And on our side, there's passion and commitment too, but it's very disjointed. Mm -hmm. And um, and you cannot expect, and I, I say this with all re due respect for the American people who I'm in this for alone, that they're going to conclude individually what exactly they should do. So routinely, I'm presented with the question of what should we do about all this? Well, we, we really need to be able to answer that. And in the case of the World Economic Forum and all of its subcomponent agendas, there needs to be a deliberative institutional commitment to build the coalitions and, and programs and efforts that are designed to preserve the greatness of American 
society. We are not, by the way, if you're on the environment alone, if you if you woke up tomorrow and you did believe, which I don't, that we face an imminent colossal threat to the world in our lifetimes by current practices, you would not start with in hit with constraining CO2 emissions in the wet in Western Europe or the United States, you would start with the world's largest polluter in China. But the World Economic mm-hmm. Forum exempts them. They talk about human rights in some of their phraseology and some of their white papers. They didn't say one word about the genocide of the Uyghurs mm-hmm. in China because it's inconvenient to them politically and they're aligned with with them. So the, the, these are not people who are sincere with what they're talking about. We have challenges that exist right now in the world that that demand that many of which go back to uh, China. And if you're going to exempt yourself from criticizing China, you're you're missing the greatest um, threats to humanity that exists in the world today. And let's let's go back to something you mentioned uh, earlier, and that was the leadership that we have, let's, let's take Congress for an example. Let's, let's look at the Senate. Rand Paul comes to mind and I, I I don't know a whole lot. Ron Johnson, Wisconsin. I think he's great. Uh, Who else do you see in the Senate? There's a lot of of great guys. And frankly, a lot of these, including the two you just mentioned, were products of the Tea Party movement. It's one of the things that I think we can be proud about that we have elevated and moved into positions of authority individuals align with our agenda. But if we don't structurally, if you just want to take the congressional part of it, one of the reasons that there's such stalemate is that, uh, firstly, the institutions become immensely partisan, but one of the reasons, more partisan than ever, one of those reasons that it's become partisan is that there's way too much power in the hands of the leadership of of both the House and the Senate, not enough power in the hands of individual members were there to represent their districts, but soon find out when they get to Washington that that's not what leadership wants to talk about. They want to talk about their agenda. Way too many bills that are presented that are vastly detailed, thousands of pages written in legalese, no time to assess or amend them, not enough of the deliberative process that was supposed to come out of these committees. I mean, committees have turned into circuses, political circuses. That's not what they're intended to be. They're intended to really be to assess objectively issues, challenges, problems, opportunities, and the array of options to call experts before them and to solicit the best ideas and make the most sensible decisions, regardless of partisan consideration for the country. And then the money is just a problem. Now, here's the other flip side of that. And this is something I'm wrestling with right now is that all these deficiencies that exist within our democratic constitution-based system of government are glaringly obvious if you're paying attention, but it doesn't lead as I think our enemies would want us to lead to a position where we say this system is broken. The components of the system are broken. The system has been immensely successful. In fact, the best political structure than anyone could envision. Our founders were geniuses. And, they, and our founders really provided even for how to deal with moments like this. And we should look to them for both inspiration and we need to elevate them, I think, really, in the absence of the sort of leaders that we're looking for as intellectual and leaders and, and leaders of character in the way of the boldness that they brought to the challenges at hand for today. 
And not don't think in terms, this is the mistake I think a lot of well-intentioned people make. Don't think in terms of needing a singular political leader is going to be, you know, don't get into the issue of, you know, who's better, Trump, DeSantis. No, the power is with the people. We we formulate the political movement by which any uh, serious presidential candidate ultimately is going to need to go and and obtain support. Um, our most innovative and, and productive companies, um, Will, are such that if, if if we go down that path, and if China doesn't, and no one's telling them to, and they're not ever going to do that, they're building coal plants rapidly right now, mm-hmm. for instance. I think they're 30, not adopting. I think there's no ESG in any company in uh, in China. No right. one's sitting around saying, you know, uh, we need to restructure our, our goals. Their goals are productivity, and they have a very elaborate plan under Xi Jinping um, you know, that, that will essentially put them at the centerpiece of the global economy. And that would be very dangerous under any circumstances with a country, uh, but especially with a country that is, let's face, let me be blunt, the most murderous regime in the history of man, 80 million, 100 million killed since 1949, um, China Revolution, you know, more than Stalin, more than Hitler. This is a uh, evil regime in all respects, operating in evil and, and devious and deceptive ways. And I guess the most terrifying thing about it is they have a plan, and I'm not sure we do. Mm-hmm. We have a system, but the system is even now being, you know, being eroded and undermined. I mentioned the NASDAQ market just by way of understanding. It. I mean, we've I think roughly about $40 trillion in market cap in our publicly traded companies. And you know, NASDAQ alone is $19.4 trillion. So there you've got you know half of our publicly traded market uh, capped companies restructuring their objectives. We haven't had any national debate on that. We haven't really had a whole lot of national discussion on it. Um, these boards, if they've even voted on it, they haven't been shareholder votes. I, I feel these agendas, much like the unbelievable um, and terrifying errors made in, in uh, with COVID and the, and, and the obvious misrepresentation of, of the uh, purported vaccine, which wasn't even really a vaccine. These are things that are going to undermine confidence in our system. And you might say, well, that's good because it'll lead us to change. But the question is, what kind of change? I mean, we need to fix these systems. We should never be in a, in a, a world where we have um, the FDA f- funding, uh, being funded by the very industry in big pharma that, that they're charged with regulating. I don't really even recall a debate over that. And frankly, 25 years ago, that didn't occur. Mm-hmm. These things seem to happen very quietly. And um, and we find out about it afterwards and live with the ramifications. Same with our funding of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. A perfect example. I don't think anyone was aware of that. I, I know the Trump White House wasn't aware of it. The Obama White House, before when Fauci was doing that, wasn't aware of it until they were aware of it. And then they told him to stop. And once Obama left, he went right back at it in a very secret and I believe illegal way. Unfortunately, with control of the House, we'll be able to unearth a lot of these things. But again, you come back to, do we have the sort of leaders and the sophisticated uh, approach and strategic approach that needs to be 
made to really right these wrongs, or does it become just more political stagnation and political theater? We, we we've had enough of that. There's no room for that. And and then I guess a final point leads me to to my message to people of goodwill out there: don't look at TV hosts or authors or professors as leaders. They don't even consider themselves that. They are a mirror of the broader society that they cover. This is about engagement and activism. And communications is a very big part of that, but it's not the only part of it. Ultimately, you know, it's about assembling coalitions, influencing uh, and reinforcing with the American people where we should be going, presenting concrete solutions to sometimes complicated problems, pushing back and challenging a, a political ideology globally now that is designed to isolate and make us look bad and make us look foolish. Um, yeah, yeah, that's going to be part of the price of all this, but we're defending this country that was handed to us by and, and generation after generation of patriot grave that if we get away from them today, what would they say about it would be Klaus scary. Schwab? Yeah, it would Klaus be scary. Schwab <laughs> telling us how to structure our country, our democracy, our private sector, our, you know, uh, entire society and economy. I mean, it, it's easy to sort of laugh at it, but it's not laughable when you consider the fact that in the grand scheme of their plan from zero to a hundred, they're well over 50. I mean, they're well yeah. over half of the way there. I don't, you know, get, get, and then getting these things back, rolling them back is always enormously more difficult than actually stopping them in the first place. Yeah. So take that lesson away. We need to stop additional bad things from happening. We're going to have to focus on rolling some of these things back. And those are going to be you know, considerably greater undertakings than if we just stopped them in the first place. And the leaders who should have stopped them in the first place didn't. They need to be held accountable. And we need to be like upfront and honest about that. If we were running a corner store you know, and somebody made these errors of judgment, we would be holding them accountable. This is, as we correctly say, the future of the country and the future of the world. We're getting to the end of our hour. And Lou, I wanted you to have opportunity to come in here and, and maybe ask uh, something that, that's on your mind. And I've got one more question, but we have to make it really quick to be able to get out of here. Uh, Lou, did you have something for Michael? No, I think he's pretty much covered everything that I was interested in on the grassroots movement and what we need to do to get engaged. What most of the people and the questions that I hear that are presented to me, um, I, I think that for the most part, I'm still learning about the World Economic Forum and what it what it includes. And it, it is scary for me. And there's a lot more information that I am um, that I'm going to delve into. And I think Michael is really opening my eyes to a lot of things. So I, I'm satisfied with what I'm hearing for right now. Awesome. And Michael, I've got one last question for you. And I'm going to this is going to be probably the biggest challenge you're going to have this week and see if I can get it in one word, a one word answer. And that would be yes or no. Or we can do it another way. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about what's what's going ahead with the World Economic Forum? I'm optimistic because I'm now focused on it, uh, but that's looking at the world through my eyes. I knew historically when I brought my efforts to the Reagan Doctrine and Cold War, I I felt good about what I did. 
when I brought my efforts to the Tea Party movement, I felt, you know, big things happened. And, and when I got behind Trump in, in 15, which I almost need to remind people about, you know, I was criticized by fellow conservatives, uh, editor of National Review, said I was handing the, the White House to Hillary Clinton on Megyn Kelly on the show on Fox, things like that. Never get any apology, but I feel this has gotten my attention now. And I'm not sure a year ago, it really, you know, I was, I was acutely aware of the agenda and what was happening and how negative it was. But uh, I think we'll be able to, with ongoing efforts now, begin to awaken our side to the reality that um, this thing is real and uh, we're either going to stop it or not stop it. We have to stop it. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. You have done so much for this country, so much for conservatives in this country. I want to thank you for that. And I know so many people listening to this right now feel the same way. Thank you for giving us your time. Thank you. This hour has been brought to you by 4 When you go there, use promo code OUTLOUD at checkout. That's one word, OUTLOUD at 4 Thanks for listening, and I hope that you have a better idea and a better understanding of what we're facing with the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum. Michael Johns, as always, was fantastic. Remember, salt without flavor is useless. It's just thrown in the street to be stopped on. You are the salt of the earth, so be salty. You've been listening to Our Lives in Politics with your hosts Booker Scott and Lou Basada. 